Good evening, everyone. Welcome. My name is Tom Landy with the Center for Religion, Ethics, and Culture, and I want to thank you for joining us tonight. I'm especially pleased to welcome David Sorkin, author of a really remarkable book, The Religious Enlightenment, Protestants, Jews, and Catholics from London to Vienna. Tonight's lecture is part of the Deitchman Family Lectures on Religion and Modernity. As befits the series, Professor Sorkin is especially well-suited to help us probe the origins of modernity. He'll help us examine and possibly rethink the connections between religion and modernity and the intellectual movement that is said to have given birth to the modern world. Professor Sorkin challenges the conventional view of the Enlightenment as a source of modern secular culture in opposition to religion and faith. Rather, he looks across geographic boundaries and religious denominations to make the argument that a form of reasonable belief that balanced between faith and reason, or scripture and science, was at the heart of the Enlightenment. Further, he suggests that recognition of a religious enlightenment in 18th century Europe can help bridge the chasms between secularists and believers today. David Sorkin is professor of history and the Francis and Lawrence Weinstein Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. At the university, he served as director of the Institute for Research in the Humanities from 2003 to 2007 and was a director of the Center for Jewish Studies. His other books include The Berlin Haskalah, German and Jewish Religious Thought, and Moses Mendelssohn and the Religious Enlightenment. Please welcome David Sorkin. Thank you. Um, good evening. I'm delighted to be um, here in Worcester and at Holy Cross College. Uh, and it's an honor to have been invited to deliver the Deitchman Family Lectures on Religion and Modernity. Uh, my topic this evening, uh, as Tom Landy has just said, is the Religious Enlightenment, Protestants, Jews, and Catholics from London to Vienna. Or to put it differently, it's about the relationship between the Enlightenment and religion uh, in the period from the Glorious Revolution and the Act of Toleration in England in 1689, which extended toleration to dissenting or non-Anglican Protestants in England, to the French Revolution and the civil constitution of the clergy in 1789-1790, which aimed to reshape church-state relations in France by ending the church's status as a separate corporation and making it a state church. And I'll come back to this issue. Now, this topic at first glance might be of historical interest, but doesn't seem to be of much contemporary interest. Yet history is often contemporary in unexpected or uncanny ways. Let's talk first about American politics. During the years of the Bush administration, there was a widespread assumption that there was a fundamental opposition between godless liberals on the one side and believing conservatives on the other side, that liberals were unbelievers and conservatives believers. And this opposition was thought to be rather pervasive. For example, that liberals embraced science, whereas conservatives disputed science's claims, whether on environmental issues or impeding stem cell research. For liberals, there was political correctness. For conservatives, theological correctness. And in the recent presidential election, this opposition also played a role when Senator McCain um, reinforced this image of conservative belief by choosing Sarah Palin as his running mate, and when 
Barack Obama tried to cleanse his party of its supposed anti-religious bias by softening the party's platform on abortion, referring to his own faith, and choosing Joe Biden, a Catholic, as his vice presidential running mate. Now, lurking beneath this supposed opposition between godless liberals and believing conservatives is the assumption that it can be traced back to the Enlightenment, that it's the Enlightenment which is the great historical watershed which actually gave rise to this opposition. And indeed, some commentators spoke of the Bush years, for example, Gary Wills, in an op-ed in the New York Times on November, in November 2004, entitled his article, The Day the Enlightenment Went Out. This was about Bush's, his victory in 2004. And other commentators, for example, Kevin Phillips in his book on American theocracy, talked about the period of the Bush administration as one of national disenlightenment, characterized by the renunciation of science and rationality in favor of a theologization of politics grounded in millenarian Christianity. So what I'm pointing to here is the widespread, indeed perhaps the ubiquitous assumption, that the Enlightenment is the source of modern secular culture and politics. That Locke and Hume in England, Montesquieu, Voltaire, and Diderot in France, Lessing and Kant in Germany, these representatives of the Enlightenment created something which was modernity itself, and that that modernity was and remains secular. Now, there are, in fact, good reasons for this view of the Enlightenment being um, secular and the fount of modern secular culture, because scholars propagated it for a long time. It was the view that was taught in American colleges and universities since the end of the Second World War. The main scholarly books that were assigned in graduate, undergraduate and graduate courses offered this very view. Ernst Cassirer's Magisterial, The Philosophy of the Enlightenment, first published in 1932 and translated in 1951. Paul Hazard's European Thought in the 18th Century, translated in 1954. And then Peter Gay's The Enlightenment, published in 1966-1967. Now, this view of the Enlightenment as the fount of secular modernity has an admirable pedigree. Kassir and Hazar, for example, were European scholars who championed Enlightenment in the 1930s as a counterweight to Italian fascism and German Nazism. The Enlightenment for them represented an alternative to the tragedies and the horrors that they were about to experience. Similarly for Peter Gay, actually born Peter Furlich in Berlin in 1923, was an emigre from Nazi Germany, and he saw the Enlightenment as a counterweight to the Nazism he had himself experienced firsthand. He didn't leave Germany until 1938. Yet also as inspiring the American liberalism which, with which he had come to identify. His two-volume History of the Enlightenment, which won the National Book Award when it was published, appeared at the apogee of liberalism in the 1960s. And what he put forth was the equivalent in the realm of cultural history of the modernization theory 
which was then regnant in the American social sciences. American sociologists and political scientists in the 1950s and 60s, and even later, thought that all societies everywhere in the world were moving toward urbanism, industrialization, and democracy. That what was emerging was a secular world of rationality in which religion played little, if any, role. In other words, that a world was emerging which realized the Enlightenment program of rationality and science. Now, it takes a long time for such a powerful and cogent view first to crack and then to crumble. But in the last two decades, notable historians have begun to chip away at the foundations of this view. J.G.A. Pocock, taught at Johns Hopkins, has argued against the notion of a single secular enlightenment, instead proposing the notion of what he called a family of enlightenments, as the plural, including what he, point, what he designated the Protestant enlightenment of England, Holland, and Switzerland. Dale Van Clay at Ohio State, uh, a good friend of mine, has restored the role of Jansenism in particular and religion in general to our understanding of the French Enlightenment and the origins of the French Revolution. Derek Beals at Cambridge University has shown the centrality of Catholic Enlightenment uh, to the enlightened absolutism of Joseph II and the Habsburg monarchy and also recovered the vibrant intellectual life of Europe's Catholic monasteries in the 17th and 18th centuries. And most recently, Jonathan Israel at the Institute for Advanced Study has written a monumental synthesis of the Enlightenment, recognizing religious belief among the Enlightenment's central figures. Now, building on these works, I've argued in my book, and will argue here this evening, that it's time to discard the still popular notion of an exclusively secular enlightenment. Rather, we need to recognize that the enlightenment was a spectrum of opinion that included a distinctly religious enlightenment. Now, what was or what do I mean by relig the religious enlightenment? I'd like to characterize it this evening as an effort to articulate a version of religion they accomplished three things. First, it supported a religiously plural society. Second, it was compatible with contemporary developments in science and philosophy, or indeed utilized those developments to articulate and reinforce belief. The religious enlightenment was a movement of intellectual renewal within the established religions. And third, I'd like to show that Protestants, Jews, and Catholics all participated in and contributed to the religious enlightenment. The religious enlightenment cut across national boundaries. It, uh, it took place in England, France, Switzerland, the German states, the Habsburg Empire, and Italy. But it also crossed confessional boundaries. Now, let's look first at the origins and motivation for religious enlightenment. And here we go back to Europe in the 17th century. The challenge that faced Europe in the middle of the 17th century, let's say, say 1648, after the Reformation, 
and the century of wars, religious wars that followed the Reformation, was how to sustain a religiously plural society. Because those religious, the Reformation and those religious wars had first and foremost brought about unprecedented destruction and suffering. It's estimated that in Central Europe, as much as one-third of the population died. Where there were once flourishing towns, all that remained was rubble and wolves. As Montesquieu in the early 18th century had one of his travelers say in his satirical travelogue, The Persian Letters, quote, I can assure you that no kingdom has ever had as many civil wars as the kingdom of Christ. Yet all these wars resulted in a religious stalemate. The monopoly of the Catholic Church had been broken, but no denomination became dominant or hegemonic afterwards. The Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which put an end to the religious wars following the Reformation, recognized the legitimacy of three religions, Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Calvinism. And this was, of course, unprecedented. It was the first international treaty which recognized a plurality of religions. And the European states themselves were a patchwork of religious pluralism. There were Protestant minorities in Catholic countries, in France, in Italy, in the South German states. There were Catholic minorities in Protestant countries, in England, Holland, and the North German states. There were states where the ruler professed one religion and the majority of the populace another. Prussia, for example. The king was a Calvinist, the population primarily Lutheran. There were states in which there was virtual parity between the two religions. And then, to add to the mixture, there were Jews as a minority virtually throughout Europe. They were readmitted to, Amster, admitted to Amsterdam in the 1590s, readmitted to England in 1656, to Berlin in 1671, etc. The question then became, how could members of different religions live in harmony and peace in a shared society and build a common polity? Now the answer, of course, was toleration. Religious enlighteners renounced polemical sermons and disputation literature aimed against other religious groups in order to devote themselves to arguing for toleration of other religions, but on religious grounds. Now, time and again, toleration in the West has been attributed to secular thinkers and a secular enlightenment. Toleration is usually seen as the creation of, a, of secular or secularizing Protestants in England, particularly the thinker John Locke, in the Netherlands, particularly the Huguenots who had escaped from France, and then in Switzerland. Indeed, toleration is often touted as one of the Enlightenment's signal achievements and usually associated with the narrative of secularization. That is, society became more secular under the Enlightenment, toleration increased. In fact, 
Religious thinkers, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, played a key role in imagining a tolerant and a believing society. Both tolerant and believing. Religious enlighteners saw no tension or contradiction between fervent belief and an equally fervent commitment to toleration. The two went hand in hand. And what I'd like to show is that this is that toleration and belief could be compatible through three major ideas. Okay, these, these are the ideas of natural religion, of natural law theory, and the idea of a state church. So let's take these in order. First, the idea of natural religion. Natural religion designated those ideas that were considered to be accessible to all people through reason. It was usually, natural religion was usually considered to be a triad of ideas. The existence of God, his providence, and rewards and punishments in a future life. Now, if you take these three together, they serve as a guarantee of morality. If there's a God who exists, who supervises human action, and an afterlife in which one gets one's just desserts, then whatever the inequities of this life, all people ultimately will get what they deserve. Okay, and one of my professors used to be fond of saying about the inequities of this world, uh, that it rains on the just and the unjust alike, but the unjust always have umbrellas. Now, natural religion, these ideas of God, providence, and rewards and punishment in a future life, served as, as a guarantee of morality, creating a common basis for society, meaning to say this was a shared morality despite or beyond confessional differences. It meant that if you accepted the idea of natural religion, Protestants of different denominations, Protestants and Catholics could in fact trust each other to be moral people. The second idea on which toleration was based was that of natural law theory. Now, natural law recognized the autonomy of individuals. It usually started with the idea of the individual as a thinking being, or as a political being, or as a property owner, and thus recognized the autonomy to think, to participate in society, or to own and enjoy property. And from that foundation of individual autonomy, one could create the idea of toleration. Religious enlighteners used natural law theory in a somewhat different way. They used not a secular idea of natural law theory or a secular version of it, but an ecclesiastical law version. They didn't start with the individual as a thinker, a political being, or a property owner but they started with the individual as having freedom of belief or conscience. The individual, having that right of freedom of belief or conscience, then freely chose, in this theory, to become a member of a church 
or a synagogue. In so doing, the individual did not renounce his autonomy. In the church or synagogue, the individual was to be taught, consoled, or exhorted, but never to be coerced. In other words, what ecclesiastical natural law theory taught was that freedom and toleration in the church became the basis for freedom and toleration in society at large. So in, to use more technical terms, what religious enlighteners argued on the basis of ecclesiastical natural law was that the church had the right of the minor ban, that the church could exclude someone who had joined for unseemly or reprehensible behavior, or if the individual disputed fundamental beliefs of the church. You could then exclude someone. That's not a form of coercion. That's just a way of maintaining the purity and uniformity of belief. But what the church couldn't do was to exclude the person and have that affect their civil status. That was known as the major ban. So religious enlighteners renounced the major ban in which churches could affect the status of the individual in civil society, but retained the minor ban. Now, the religious enlighteners who advocated religious toleration using the idea of natural religion, ecclesiastical natural law theory, also advocated a view of reason that was compatible with belief. Now, scholars of the Enlightenment who championed the notion that it was primarily, if not exclusively, secular, usually argue that for the Enlightenment, rationality, by definition, was secular, that reason was opposed to belief, that scripture was opposed to reason and science. Religious enlighteners instead advocated a new idea of reasonableness that, all, that included belief. For them, reason was compatible with the authority of scripture, revelation, and miracles. The religious enlighteners would not accept truths contrary to reason, so they wouldn't accept logical contradictions but they did acknowledge truths above reason. And in keeping with this, they saw natural religion as necessary but not sufficient. They thought that the truths of natural religion, the existence of God, his providence, and of rewards and punishment, was insufficient to provide a viable morality and that natural religion alone could not bring man to salvation or God's way. Natural religion had to be supplemented by revealed religion and by the truths of revelation. Now this idea of reasonableness, which didn't accept truths contrary to reason, but did recognize truths above reason, allowed the religious enlighteners to embrace the latest in science and philosophy. In science, they embraced the Copernican revolution 
and Newtonian physics. This meant that they didn't treat the Bible as a source of science. They treated the Bible as the source of salvation. In other words, they acted on the saying that Galileo had made famous about the Bible when he said, quote, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. So the scope of the Bible was limited to salvation. It wasn't treated, uh, as one religious enlightener, William Warburton, said, as a treasury of science. In philosophy, the religious enlighteners, using this idea of reasonableness, were able to embrace the new post-Aristotelian or non-scholastic philosophies. That meant in England that they could use the empirical philosophy of John Locke, or in France, the rationalism of Descartes and Malebranche, or in German-speaking Europe, the rationalism of Leibniz and Wolff. Now, the third idea that they, the religious enlighteners used to support the idea of toleration, natural religion, ecclesiastical natural law theory, the third idea in creating and supporting a multi-confessional society was to change church-state relations. And the way their answer to the problem of church-state relations was to create what came to be known as a state church. Now, the challenge in the period that I've mentioned, from the Glorious Revolution in England to the French Revolution from 1689 to 1789, was what would take the place of the confessional state. Because until then in Europe, the states were usually identified with one religion. In France, for example, there was the motto, one king, one faith. France was Catholic, England was Anglican, Spain was Catholic, etc. And there was this notion that a state, in order to survive, had to have one religion. Now, there were radical answers which emerged to this question in the course of the 18th century. The American Revolution, for example, represented the radical answer of separation of church and state. The French philosopher Rousseau, for example, presented the radical answer of having a civil religion, of not using any of the established religions, but creating a new religion uh, which could become the cement of society. The religious enlighteners didn't propose a radical answer, but rather a moderate alternative in the idea of a state church. And what they meant by a state church is the church-state relations should be based on the same ecclesiastical natural law theory as toleration. That the foundation of it should be the idea of autonomy. Autonomy for the individual and autonomy for the church itself. Now what this meant in historical terms is that the church would have to give up its corporate character. Coming out of the Middle Ages and into early modern Europe, churches often were treated as separate 
groups or separate corporations in society. Churches were often exempt from taxation. They often had their own courts in which members of the church were subject to church law, ecclesiastical law, rather than the law of the state. Churches owned separate property and had their own sources of income. Instead, instead of being a separate corporation, churches were to be integrated into the state's administrative mechanism. This is something which the French Revolution did in the civil constitution of the clergy. The idea was, is that rather than the church maintaining its own property, the salaries of clergy would be paid by the state, for example. In return for integration into the state's mechanism, the state would guarantee both the individual's freedom of conscience and the church's institutional independence. The state would not interfere with matters of belief, with the liturgy, with doctrine, with the sacraments, with symbolic books, but rather the state's purview or jurisdiction would be limited to matters that impinged on the civil order, church administration, the use of property, in Catholic countries, admission to monasteries, uh, etc. The religious enlightenment, then, can be characterized by the ideas of reasonableness and natural religion, ecclesiastical natural law and toleration, and the idea of a state church. Yet the religious enlighteners and the religious enlightenment have largely been forgotten by history. For one, they've been written out of the canon of what's often held to be a secular enlightenment. In textbooks on the enlightenment, in histories of the enlightenment, we're told the secular enlighteners, but we're not told about the religious enlighteners. By definition, they've been excluded. I would argue that we need to recover these individuals and the substantial and important movements to which they belonged. And just to name a few examples, uh, in England, a figure of the religious enlightenment was William Warburton, who lived from 1698 to 1779. Uh, he was the Bishop of Gloucester. Uh, and wrote two extremely important works for the 18th century, one on church-state relations called The Alliance Between Church and State, another one of the most important works in historical theology published in the 18th century called The Divine Legation of Moses. And he was part of a movement in the Anglican Church known as Moderation that actually dominated from the 1730s to the 1760s. In Calvinist Geneva, a prominent religious enlightener was a pastor named Jacob Vernet, who lived from 1698 to 1789, and who was associated with a movement called Enlightened Orthodoxy that was supreme from the 1720s to the 1770s. In Lutheran Prussia, Sigmund Jakob Baumgarten lived from 1706 to 1757. He was part of a movement called the Theological Enlightenment 
that was dominant from the 1740s to the 1780s. And Baumgarten actually is a wonderful example of the way in which the religious enlighteners have been written out of the canon of the Enlightenment. Because scholars of the 18th century are, many of them are familiar with, with the figure of Alexander Baumgarten. Alexander Baumgarten was a philosopher who coined the term aesthetics. The systematic study of aesthetics was, part, was created in the 18th century. What's significant is, is Alexander Baumgarten was Sigmund Jakob Baumgarten's younger brother. And during their lifetime, Sigmund Jakob was more important. But in the books, in the scholarship on the Enlightenment, Sigmund Jakob has disappeared and Alexander has persisted. Jews in Europe, particularly in the German-speaking lands, Moses Mendelssohn, who lived from 1729 to 1786, was the foremost representative of the Jewish Enlightenment or Haskalah that was front and center from the 1770s to the 1790s. And let me just cite two Catholic examples. Uh, in the Habsburg Empire, Joseph Eibel, who lived from 1741 to 1805, was a representative of the Reform Catholicism that came to power uh, under the Empress Maria Theresa and under Joseph II, both of whom introduced programs of church and state reform that were realizations of the ideas of reform Catholicism. And in France, finally, uh, Adrien Lamourette, who lived from 1742 to 1794, was a representative of the reform Catholicism that emerged in the 1770s and 1780s and would have had its greatest triumph in the civil constitution of the clergy introduced in 1790, which attempted to change st church-state relations in France and introduce a state church. But of course, this uh, failed as the revolution radicalized. These were then substantial movements of religious renewal and reform, which had significant impacts on their respective traditions and the larger society, and all of them, in one form or another, gained state sponsorship. In conclusion, it's important to revise our understanding of the Enlightenment by recognizing the religious Enlightenment as part of the spectrum of the Enlightenment. Important to do this to set the historical record straight, yet doing so also has broader implications. In recognizing the religious Enlightenment, we begin to take issue with the notion of a model of linear secularization since the 18th century. The idea that the world has become increasingly secular since the Enlightenment uh, in an inevitable and linear manner. It further asserts that modernity and religion are not hostile but interwoven, and that modernity itself consists not in the secular, but in an amalgam of the secular and the religious. And finally, to return to our starting point, 
It asserts that the opposition of godless liberalism and believing conservatism in American politics is built on a false notion of the Enlightenment. Thank you. I'll be happy to take questions. You mean ideas contrary to reason and ideas above reason? Yeah, they're, they're ideas above reason. I mean, what, how, do we, how do we set the standards for what's above reason? What, how do we judge what? Facing on Tom Cruise's uh, religion, is that, is, that super, <laughs> is that super rational? I mean, where, how, what are the criteria left then to uh, decide whether these Yeah. That, that, that's a very good question, and I think what it what it points to uh, is that what religious enlighteners were trying to do with this more expansive notion of reasonableness was to perpetuate and maintain criteria for judging religion, which had been traditional for centuries. Meaning to say. A narrow notion of rationality might have suggested, for example, that testimony of past events was no longer admissible, and that traditions which had been handed down from the past could never be verified. And what the religious enlighteners were trying to do, in part, was to maintain those kinds of criteria which had been used since late antiquity and which were foundational for both Christianity and Judaism. The notion, for example, that testimony from the historical past could be both tested and deemed valid. Or to put it more specifically, that if there were miracles which had occurred in the past, which were necessary in, to authenticate religious belief, that there were ways to test and authenticate those miracles. So that the idea of reasonableness for the religious enlighteners included the notion that, for example, the miracles in the New Testament could actually be authenticated. And they could be authenticated on the basis of the kind of testimony which appeared in the New Testament itself because they had been witnessed by the apostles and then knowledge of those miracles had been handed down continuously ever since. Or similarly for Jews in the Old Testament that the revelation at Sinai had been a public revelation it had been revealed to a multitude. It had been recorded as being revealed to a multitude. And then there was a constant tradition ever since which had verified its veracity. 
so that the idea, their idea of reasonableness included these inherited notions of truth. Now, you might think that that's sleight of hand, right? But for them, it wasn't. For them, it was, it, 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 it was genuine. It was genuine. I mean, I think, yeah, well, um, okay. <laughs> Okay, let, let's talk first about anti-clericalism. There certainly is anti-cleric, a great deal of anti-clericalism in the Enlightenment. Okay, certainly you find it oh, among deists in England, for example, Toland and, and others. And there's a very strong sense, it begins with the deists, there's a very strong sense that it's the clergy who have perverted religion. That there was an original true religion, natural religion, which then the clergy over time somehow perverted and perverted to, for their own benefit, both especially their own material benefit. And that's a very strong strain within the Enlightenment. There's also an anti-clericalism in France, for example, with Voltaire, which is um, an anti-Catholic or an anti-papal anti-clericalism, right? It's this sense that the Catholic Church has become too powerful and that has become oppressive. What's usually not taken into account or is ignored in the 18th century, and which could fall under the heading of anti-clericalism, I, I think, is that within Catholicism itself, for example, there's tremendous rivalry between different orders. For example, one of the key themes in Reformed Catholicism and the Catholic version of religious enlightenment is anti-Jesuitism. And it's, anti, it's the anti-Jesuitism of Benedictines and Augustinians and Oratorians. It's because those orders felt that the Jesuits had too much power. They didn't like the Jesuit monopoly over education. Uh, and they wanted to introduce reforms, which they genuinely believed in, but which would also deprive the Jesuits of their power. That anti-Jesuitism is actually a link in Catholic countries between religious enlighteners, between Reform Catholics, and, and a more secular Catholic enlightenment. Uh, and until the abolition of the Jesuits in 1773, it actually kind of links people sort of across the spectrum. 
Uh, on the subject of Freemasons, Freemasonry is prescribed by the Catholic Church. I can't remember the date. Is it 1764? Yeah. Because it was obviously it was seen as a threat by the church. Here's this clandestine or surreptitious order which has its own rituals and its own rites, uh, which draw on different religions in various ways, but which isn't Catholic. And was also seen as being conspiratorial and people were scared by it. Uh, the fact is, is that Freemasonry was actually, by and large, far less dangerous than people thought. Uh, the myth of uh, a dangerous Freemasonry is sort of blowing up during the French Revolution when there are particularly far right-wing thinkers who see the French Revolution as the result of, a, of the conspiracy of Freemasons. And that idea then continues as part of the Restoration in France. It's a theme that continues through the 19th century, and then even the Nazis pick it up. But really, I think Freemasonry was much more of an alternative form of an emerging sort of middle class or educated sociability. That's what it was really about. One of the significant things about Freemasonry in the 18th century, or even from the late 17th century onwards, is that it was one location in which people could associate across state lines. Nobles and commoners could actually associate as Freemasons as equals, which otherwise wasn't possible in society. So Freemasonry plays a distinct role in, in that sense. Uh, Freemasonry also is one, is, a nut, is one place, was somewhere that embodied toleration. In theory, at least, Freemasons uh, looked beyond confessional differences. Freemasons' lodges were supposed to admit Protestants of all denominations or Protestants and Catholics or even Jews. In practice, it didn't always work that way. In the late 18th century, you find, for example, Jews and into the early 19th century not being admitted into Freemasons' lodges and actually founding lodges of their own because there was a gap between theory and practice. But sometimes they were admitted as well. So I think it's as a form of sociability and a sociability to cut across state lines that Freemasonry is so important. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's right, and and there was no and and I think if you look across Europe, you'll often find that uh, high-ranking civil servants, uh, university professors, in some cases even even high-ranking clergy, were members of Freemasons' lodges, and there was nothing there was nothing subversive about it except that in a sort of structural way. In cutting across corporate lines, it sort of called into question the whole estate system. Al.
Yeah. So how, how did his centrality as an elected figure validate the idea of Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a really good question. And part of it has to do with different interpretations of Mendelssohn. And one can even follow it, one can follow those interpretations almost textually. Okay, Mendelssohn's collected writings were first put together in seven volumes and published in the 1840s. And this was something that was done by members of his, his family, at that point none of whom were Jewish, or at least those who were involved in that um, collected works. And for one thing, they chose to publish only his German writings and ignore and excluded his Hebrew works, which would have obviously showed a different side of Mendelssohn. And in addition, the person who wrote the introduction to the collected works argued that Mendelssohn's continuing religious observance was actually only a strategy. That he maintained his religious observance solely in order to be able to maintain his standing and his influence. And that in fact, he no longer believed. And so that introduction and the biography in the collected works was what people read. If you went to read Mendelssohn, it was much easier to go to the collected works from the 1840s than to dig out the original editions from the late 18th century. So that, intro, that introductory biography had a tremendous impact because there wasn't an alternative edition of Mendelssohn until the Berlin Academy for the Science of Judaism began uh, a Jubilee edition in 1929, which was then interrupted by the Nazis one volume of the Hebrew works disappeared and then wasn't actually published until the 1970s, and that edition still isn't finished. There are still volumes coming out. So that for the entire, from the 1840s up until the 1920s, if you went to the collected works, Mendelssohn's collected works, and you read the introduction and the biography, that's what you got. So the, the family, this family-inspired edition tried to present Mendelssohn as a German philosopher, as a German thinker, but as someone who had remained a Jew only for strategic reasons. And there continues to be, even in the Jewish scholarship on Mendelssohn, and the first bi scholarly biography appeared in the 1860s by Meyer Kaiserling, if you trace out, if you, if you read the, bi the scholarship on Mendelssohn from that first scholarly biography, all the way down to Alexander Altman's monumental biography of the 1970s, there's a, a, a very salient practice of marginalizing the Hebrew works. Kaiserling was a wonderful he Hebraist who published medieval Spanish, you know, published medieval Spanish poetry that until then had remained in manuscript. And he mentions the Hebrew works and occasionally gives little summaries, but devotes long analyses to the German works. And Alexander Altman does the same thing. You know, Altman was a, a fabulous Hebraist who had studied, you know, 
Jewish texts of all traditions, had done scholarly studies in medieval Jewish philosophy. Um, he really could have done a scholarly analyses of Mendelssohn's Hebrew works. But instead, he gives you very long analyses of all the German works, and then he gives you some highlights, what he calls highlights, of different Hebrew works insofar as they illuminate the German works. So he never treats them in their own right. And then you also have people who try and, well, follow, in, in, a, in a sense, give a scholarly version to that introduction to the 1840s edition of his works and argue that Mendelssohn was, in fact, a deist. You know, they sort of use Leo Strauss's notion, notions from persecution in the art of writing, that, you know, Mendelssohn, like Maimonides, was really a deist, but he could never come out and say it, so he gives you hints in the texts and their contradictions built into the texts, and if you read those contradictions carefully, then you can see what his real beliefs are. Uh, there's a book like that was pub on, published in 1994 by Alan Arkish called uh, Moses Mendelssohn and the, and the Enlightenment, and the European Enlightenment, which makes that kind of Straussian argument about Mendelssohn. That's why I think you have that view of him. Even before 1840, the popular contemporary reception, wider reception of, of Mendelssohn was then through Lessing's play Nathan the Wise. And that's the role that he's presented in. And really, the person of tolerance, uh, religions play a role, obviously, but it's the tolerance. So even before that, Yes, that's right. Yeah, and there, there, and there are some popular biographies in the 17. Mendelssohn dies in 1786. There's a popular biography by a man named Yenish, which appears in either the late 1780s or early 1790s, which is kind of hagiographical, but which also just deals with the German works and treats Mendelssohn as a German philosopher and thinker. Please. My thesis? <laughs> well, I've just, I've just published a book on this, and it just came out in August. So it was, um, I, I was lucky enough, or the book was considered significant enough that uh, Peter Steinfels, who writes the beliefs column in the New York Times, devoted an article to the book because he thought it was significant enough to discuss. Um, beyond that, I don't know yet. <laughs> I'm sorry? No, that's right. He's not a secularist. He's interested in theology and religion. So I'm waiting. <laughs> I mean, I think, as, I, as I'd said, though, there are other scholars who have been pointing, begun to point in this direction. But, but I think what's happened is, is that that's remained... That work has remained within scholarly circles and even only the narrow circles of specialists in the 18th century, for example. So I, I think it'll, it will take time because I think the view of the, you know, of a secular enlightenment and secular modernity is so deeply rooted. Uh, it's such, it's become such conventional wisdom 
that will take a long time to revise. Yeah, I mean there are there are books that are appearing. Yeah. Thank you.